0: You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Please grab your your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. And as you do that, let's rewind a little bit in Israel's history. Remember Moses told the people that to experience God's blessing, they were to be obedient and to, to worship the Lord. If they forgot the Lord who rescued them out of Egypt, and if they turned to other gods, instead of blessing, there would be cursing. And it's that blessing and cursing that we we see in Isaiah as we work our way through it. If we follow the Lord Jesus, there will be blessing. If we don't, there will be cursing. And while Israel had ignored their warning repeatedly, Israel had had been divided. So Israel then became the northern kingdom, 10 tribes conquered by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom, Judah, which we read of here, uh, uh, two tribes in the south where Jerusalem was at. And the people in in Judah, they were ignoring, continuing to ignore God's command to look after the vulnerable in society. And we got a hint of that as we read Isaiah 1 together. They forgot that the Lord was responsible for all their blessings. Not their work, but the Lord was responsible And they worshipped other gods. The elite oppressed the poor. And when they got into bother, they didn't look for help in the Lord our God, but they looked to other gods or even other nations to help them out of bother. So God sends prophets like Amos to the northern kingdom. uh, And here in the southern kingdom, we have Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet around the same time as Micah and Hosea. So some of those things will come, especially in Micah, that we encounter in Isaiah about neglecting the, the poor and vulnerable in society. And while well, Isaiah was active here for about 50 years. And in these days in Jerusalem, in those days there was oppression, there was plenty of sin and a lack of repentance, eventually leading Jerusalem to be conquered by the Babylonians. But Isaiah is a very large book of the Bible. Okay? It takes about four hours to read from first chapter to the last chapter. And it's not just that there's many pages in Isaiah, but the scope of the book is also Massive. It's universal. In fact, so if you look in verse two there, just quickly, what does the Lord say? Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth. So we get the heavens and the earth involved. And then in Isaiah sixty-six, the the last chapter, verse twenty-two. So the third last verse, what does the Lord say? As the new heavens and the new earth. So we go from the heavens and earth now to a new heavens and new earth. This is this is global. This is cosmic. This is eternity. That's the size of this book of Isaiah. And bookending the books is this idea of rebellion again. Again, we get that in the very first or the second verse uh, in chapter one and the very last verse in Isaiah 66. It's massive, not just in terms of sheer size of prophecy, but it's not just a moment in history in Jerusalem, but it's the whole earth and heavens in view. And as we consider Isaiah, over whatever number of weeks it will be, a holy God saves. And in Isaiah, constantly we will see that. We will see, especially in chapter six, of God's holiness. Even in, in this chapter, we get a glimpse of God's holiness that He cannot stand sin. God's rejection of what is unclean or unholy, disobedient and reckless. And Isaiah looks forward to Israel's judgment. Not in a, in a good way, but Isaiah also looks forward to redemption. This is the, the holy God saves. There's the justice and the holiness of God but there's also the grace and the holiness of God that God saves. Isaiah will look forward to judgment. He'll look forward to redemption from exile, the fulfilling of the Abrahamic covenant that includes all nations, one from the line of David, that wonderful counselor, the servant king, fulfilling God's salvation plan. It's all in Isaiah. It's full. It's full. You could read and read and read and not tire of God's grace and mercy. And as we turn to, we have Isaiah. So every time Isaiah talked to the people, whenever the people had to say his name, the answer to their problems was stirring them in the face. Isaiah, because every time they said Isaiah, they were saying, The Lord is salvation. With all the interactions, with all the times they met Isaiah face to face, his name, Isaiah, announces grace. His name proclaims to the people who they should be turning to. The Lord. Not themselves or another world power, but the Lord. And like the people in Jerusalem, we too are people that like to be in control, don't we? To go our own way, to live out our life in ways that really don't underpin how important God is to us. We just live a life infested with idols. Any hope that isn't from God is an idol that we make. And that's the problem in Isaiah, and that's the problem today. The world is full of idols and empty promises, but here in Isaiah is a message full of promise full of hope, full of salvation for God's people. The Lord is salvation. The Lord saves sinners. The people in Isaiah's day saw no relevance to the Lord's help. The message, the Lord is salvation, was an unpopular message for the people in Jerusalem. Isn't that true today as well? All that is the case. Unpopular message. No relevance. Or, don't we think, people don't think they need God's help. We have to remember, whenever you come to the Old Testament prophets, it's very easy and quickly to apply it to the world, isn't it? We can see bad rulers, bad kings. But Isaiah was sent to God's people, Israel. Isaiah was sent God's word to go to God's people. So we must remember not to instantly look outside of us, but start and apply God's word to God's people first. It's true that the nations need it, but we need it too. And as we look at, at Isaiah chapter 1, the first thing that we see uh, is rebelling children. in Verses 2 through to 9. You see, God describes them that they have rebelled against me. That I was uh, I reared children. And that's a, that's a devastating picture, isn't it, that Isaiah is using. Some of us maybe have experienced children rebelling against us. And It breaks so much heartache and heartbreak. It's devastating, it's really sore and hurtful. Some of us know that all too well, but how much more rebelling our own children, How much that hurts, how much more the heavenly father with his children, the one who is perfect and just and holy, experiences it far, far more, because here is a sinful nation, Jerusalem is God's own children, supposed to act out God's purposes in the world, and children who are reared and brought up and know the way that they should go, and they've literally turned their backs, haven't they? They've turned their backs and gone down another road. In verse 4, God says that you have um, your children given to corruption, you have forsaken the Lord, you have spurned, you have turned your back on me. There's no longer a respect for the Lord. They're distancing themselves from the Lord. They're saying things like, well, that was the case in Moses' day. We know much better now. That's what they're doing. And throughout the picture, we'll be able to pick up the the ignorance of God's people. That they just did not know the Lord at all. In so many ways, so much so, that God says they're going through so much difficulty. They're being surrounded. They're having all these difficult circumstances. They're experiencing the covenant cursings because they aren't faithful to God. And normally when that happens, or quite often that happens, God's people turn back to God. But here, they're continuing to walk down a different way. Their backs continue to be turned. And God says, you look like a man beaten up. You look beaten up to the point that you don't even know what's wrong with you. They're like a man beaten up. He just goes back to get another beating. That's how downcast and downtrodden the people are head injured, heart afflicted in verses 5 and 6, overwhelmed with the damage. They don't even know they're injured and bad. God indicates the devastating state of his people, like a body beyond recognition, beaten, injured, wounds, bruised. It's all pictures here of Israel and their sorry state. I will not do tonight, but think to Isaiah 53. Those words are used of the suffering servant, much later on, of Jesus. What a picture. Instead of Israel being beaten, or God's people being beaten, and not knowing where they're going, the punishment that they deserve, that picture is used of Jesus, Isaiah 53. And as bad as the sinful nation is, as awful as a beaten up man might look like, he doesn't even know, and is so disfigured throughout the rebelling children, God has grace upon grace. So look at verse 9, there's a hope of a remnant, So despite the sorry, sorry state that they should be taken out, God says that um, unless the Lord Almighty had left us survivors, the Lord is still going to hand out grace. Jerusalem is such a bad state that Sodom and Gomorrah are likened to it. It looks more like that than God's holy city. And what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, we know, don't we? But here, God says that he's going to leave some survivors. How many people survived in Sodom and Gomorrah? Zero. But here God is going to give grace. Abraham pleads and pleads for Sodom to to no avail. They're utterly destroyed, but here's grace. God's going to leave survivors. He's going to leave people. He's going to leave a remnant of his own people. Because if the Lord would not intervene in this way, if the Lord would not leave survivors, the nation would be wiped out. But here God's going to identify a core survivors, escapees of God's judgment. And we can lament about the world, although that might not be our spiritual state as a church, but we can lament about the world, we can grumble, we can question decision-making, create policies and organizations, point the finger at sin in the world. But here Isaiah is speaking to God's people, and we need to look past the world. He sense, we need to forget about the world for a moment, and look past the socioeconomic affairs of today, to look past government decisions, to be look past a judicial or political decision-makings and stop analyzing our world because God judges his children in spiritual terms. Not what the world is doing, but on spiritual terms. Ray Ortlund says this. So God's people weren't experiencing blessing. Ray Orton says this. What hinders God's blessing is his own children in rebellion against him. Does not change the narrative of what I think of the world, blaming corrupt leaders, and everywhere harboring sin inside of us. We need to look to ourselves, look to our spiritual state. Because we all know we are rebelling children, don't we? We turn our backs against God. But there's hope. There's a remnant of people, and those are the people in Jesus. Our natural tendency is rebellion rather than repentance. Sometimes we don't even recognize we are rebelling. But we need to look to ourselves before we blame the world. Because God describes them as a man that's speaking up and just goes back for more. Or being compared to a stupid donkey who knows its owner. They don't even know their owner, God says of Israel. Let's make sure we know our owner. Let's make sure we know God. Although we are rebelling children, that have turned our backs on God, Jesus comes and turns it right around, that we are adopted, as Frank was telling us this morning rebelling children verses 10 to 17 then rotten worship i wonder if you had ever the misfortune of picking up an apple in the house and taking a good bite out of it it looked really good on the outside it was firm but once you bit it they end up like really the apples on the screen it was rotten in the core and that tastes in your mouth for a good wee while isn't it that there's something not right at all about the apple And that's maybe a picture that best captures what's going on in in Isaiah's day about the worship. On the outside, it looked good. They were doing all the right things. But when you got into it, well, the reality is it's bad. It's rotten. See, although it seems that people are doing something right, we're, we're told here there's lots of sacrifices they're getting the rams, they're getting the very best animals, these fattened animals. And it seems that despite the bustling religious activity, the external appearance looks really good, but the reality is it was very different. They brought much, they spent much, but they maybe thought that that would get them out of a hole. But what we learn here is that the Lord hated the worship. The rotten worship, the Lord hated worship, and that might seem really strong, but look at what the Lord says. Surely it, it tells us that our worship doesn't come from the outside, how good we look, or what we're doing, but in our hearts. What is it that the Lord says? That he takes no pleasure in the worship in verse 12. In verse 13, it's detestable. Verse 13, again, it's meaningless. In verse 13, it's unbearable. In verse 14, my soul hates The worship was so distorted. The hearts weren't in it, and the Lord hated it. In fact, their prayers were even offensive to God. They were considered a burden. And when we gather together, as the people gathered in a really special sense in the temple here in Jerusalem, as we gather together, we gather together in the God's presence in in a special way together. See, it's not how well we look at or how much we are engaging with me, that matters. But it's the spiritual aspect of worship that is most important. It's the spiritual aspect. When the practice of worship and what's involved is more important to us than the actual spiritual heart of coming along with a problem. God cares about our heart attitude behind worship. We would do it with a sincere heart, singing, saying, doing all the right things. On the outside, looks really good, like a good apple. But if hearts aren't in it, we're rotten, as it were, to the core. And we must be careful, mustn't we? Because we're here. We want to be here. But we, too, must guard ourselves against a pattern of just being religious, of of turning up and doing, doing what we should, making it look really good, But let's prevent our hearts from growing hard or cold towards what we're doing. We can't just come and do the right things on a Sunday uh, and not have our hearts in it. Whether it's our singing or reading or praying, how many notes we're able to take from a jumbled up sermon or how colorful our notebook might be, that is not the priority. It's our heart. Really, is does God's word transform you? if God's Word is totally transforming us, our heart is not cold or hard. If we're concerned with how it looks or how it sounds, rather than what's in our hearts, we have problems. The attitude of our heart in worship is imperative. God's people are so corrupt. Their hearts are so hard. And for Israel and for the church, we can't be hard-hearted. We can't be cold in our faith because if we are in our worship that will, f- will reflect in the rest of our weeks eh, it's through the week if we're cold and hard in our faith on a Sunday morning and evening what will result throughout the week is a terrible witness and testimony to the world we must ensure that the spiritual aspect of worship is most important, that we deal with sin properly. Don't embrace it or ignore it, but get rid of it. That we continue to proclaim God's word, yes. That we continue to walk closely with the Lord, but that our hearts wouldn't grow cold or hard. We need to be applying our hearts in worship, engaging and through the power of the Holy Spirit produce fruit in us. Then we will be a proper witness and testimony to the world. Because, because God is life, the overflow of God's love and life for us is poured out in us in Jesus. And if our hearts are right before God through faith in Jesus, out of our love of God and our heart for worship overflows into the rest of the week. Because the attitude of our heart here on a Sunday, it will overflow into our daily life. The attitude of our heart here overflows into our daily life. Because here the people, they had this rotten worship and that was reflected through the rest of the week. They were daily living their life rejecting God. They were practicing this, what they weren't supposed to do. They were ignoring the vulnerable in society. It's clear to God that they were neglecting their duty of caring for the vulnerable in society. Verse 21 shows that really well. Israel is no longer a bride, but a harlot, a spiritual one. Not standing true in their covenant commitment with God. Here, there's no characteristic of righteousness. They're taking bribes. They're not concerned for the vulnerable. They're described as thieves and murderers. That was the overflow of their heart. Their heart wasn't in worship, and that poured out. Whenever God's people are worshiping the Lord uh, correctly, in all of Scripture, what pours out of their heart is reflected in, in daily life. We see that in the early church even as well. and We see that in our own lives. We need to protect and guard our hearts as we come on a Sunday. Not to go cold or hard, because that will overflow into daily life. And there's countless examples in history of that, isn't there, of Christians seeking to bring change, driven by their love of Jesus, overflowing into their life, from reforming prisons to the slave trade to education. It's all there. We have the countless examples. And maybe, if we're going to be honest, If we reflect on our own hearts and different stages in our life, that's true of us too. If we come to worship with a hard heart or a cold heart, that is often reflected through the week, isn't it? But We need to have our hearts warm, don't we? Yeah, there's the the challenge and the judgment of God, but here we're reminded Sunday by Sunday that redemption is available. Here a holy God calls sinners to repent, Not, not more of their sacrifices, not more of their worship. But repentance. God says in verse 18, Come now, let us reason together. Let us think about this. This is all wrong. You're not going to get right with me doing the things that you're doing. Look at yourselves. Your sins are like scarlet. They're like blood stained hands. They're getting caught red handed. They're guilty. God says, put away your sins in my sight because the rebellion is really clear in those first 17 verses, isn't it? It's really clear to us. A guilty verdict would be established very easily. And we're given this very vivid picture of scarlet, of blood. That's the the color of it. It's a crisis. And at the moment where you'd expect judgment, a pronouncement of guilty, and that is true, we are guilty, but God pronounces grace, doesn't he? that we are washed white as snow through Jesus. Wonderful grace. A full pardon for all those days where we've turned our backs on God, for all those days we've come into church and not our hearts haven't been in it at all, because through Jesus we have full pardon. Our worship is made acceptable. There's no power over, all, uh, over our sins anymore. They have no bind on us because they are taken by Jesus because the alternative to redemption that is available is the destruction in verses 19 and 20. But in Jesus, you have that wonderful picture, and that really famous picture of red to white, our guilt dealt with completely, because God is a holy holy God and must punish sin, and he will punish sinners who do not repent, but those who who, who do come to Jesus. Jesus takes that punishment that picture, that beaten man with wounds and welts and open sores. Know that if you trust Jesus, that is a promise that is faithful and true, that you are pardoned through faith. Sin has left the the deepest stain on humanity, and God cannot stand it, but only a holy God is also able to wash it away, that stain, and make it white as snow, pure. Instead of blood on our hands, we have forgiveness we have white we have purity those pictures from revelation that we are clothed in the righteousness of jesus rather than the blood in our hands but we are clothed in the robe of righteousness though our sins are like scarlet they will become white as snow and then there's finally and uh, very briefly a refining of zion a refining will take place. And we know that refining is, it, it removes impurities, doesn't it? So, Jerusalem, we know it's, it's been awful, but God is going to extend grace. He's going to change sinners' lives, but He's also going to change the city. Because there's a refining of Zion. So, in verse 21, we say that Jerusalem is a, a harlot. The city of Zion is a harlot. But there's a day coming where this will all change. By verse 26, Jerusalem's described as a city of righteousness, a faithful city. Why? It's nothing to do with the people. It's all of God's work and grace, isn't it? Look at what it says in between verses 21 to 26. Zion is going to be restored, and Zion is going to be purged, isn't it? There's all these bad rulers, but the Lord Almighty declares, I will get relief. I will turn my hand. I will thoroughly purge away. I will remove I will restore your judges. After that, after I finish my work, you'll be a faithful city, a city of righteousness. That is what God will do. He will purge. He will get rid of any unwanted quality in Jerusalem. But it's also a picture for what is to come immediately. But as always in the Old Testament, it points us forward, doesn't it? Always points us forward to where Isaiah ends, the new heavens and the new earth, where Zion will be refined. It will be restored in all of its glory and splendor. It will be purged from all sin. God will redeem his people in a way that continues to show his holiness, rejecting the bad, which is all of us, and accepting us in Jesus. Zion will be restored. God will remove all sin and judge. But he will also purify through his grace. This is a, a new city, isn't it? A new city for God's holy people. A city of righteousness. All of us will be righteous. Why? Our sins were scarlet, now white as snow. It's a new city for God's holy people through Jesus. Isaiah, a holy God of sinners. Aren't we so thankful? Every time we think of Isaiah, let's have those words in our, in our heads, the Lord is salvation because we are rebellion children. We are rebellious children. We are sometimes rotten in our worship. We cannot give or earn salvation yet. Our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. And we will one day be in that city of righteousness, that refined city, not of our own doing, but all of God's grace.